Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? For anyone that doesn't know, Austin today is rocking a red bandana. He looks like a complete douche. <laughs> I, uh, I look like Prison it. Mike for all the Office fans. <laughs> uh, my hair is getting too long, so I need to just hold it back. So this is the only thing I could find. What's going on with you, man? You take a solid, what is it now? It's been like two weeks, three weeks since we... uh. Yeah, the holidays. It's since the holidays. Things are good. I don't think anyone gives a shit about my personal life, so I won't get into that too much. But let's talk about the real estate side of what I've been up. What'd you get for Christmas, man? What'd I get for Christmas? Um, (laughs) Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. You gave me a $100 gift card. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. Is that what you're looking for? Shout out to uh, MT Mortgages for sponsoring this podcast. Sponsoring that bandana. All right, man. What's going on on the real estate side with you? So over the holidays, my primary focus over the holidays was continuing to connect with tenants. If you guys followed my stories, I've been having a lot of conversation with them. So one of the tenants, they stopped paying rent because they lost their job a while back. And I'm just following up with them. Is that the 962 one? That individual and another individual. The 962, I spoke with him and the conversation went well. And then he just started ignoring <laughs> me. So I'm like, okay, like, we're going to yeah, have yeah. to take, we have to proceed. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I gave him the chance. We try to work it out the cheap way, but we couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Another tenant stopped paying rent because they lost their job. But I know like just my sense of conversation with him, he's been picking up all of my calls and he's working hard to try to get another, another job. So I'm, I'm trying to work with him. Isn't it kind of crazy? Because we're seeing job like displacement, people going unemployed and stuff like that. And like Canada's coming out here saying 105 new jobs, like employment market is still pretty strong. Yeah, I think it's because of all the immigrants that are being let in as well, right? The vast majority of them need to get an uh, employment. They're not coming here and not getting any sort of job, right? Yeah, but you still got to create the job. You can't just be like, okay, you're employed, you're employed, everyone's employed. Like, you still got to create the job and there's got to be enough demand in the market for the job. I just, I'm just starting to think that maybe it's um, the real estate related market. So, like construction, definitely probably seeing a slowdown. Obviously, realtors, mortgage agents, lawyers, any kind of associated field is probably seeing a slowdown, but I'm just curious where these new jobs are coming from, like, or in what industry they are. And you probably don't know the answer, but I don't know the answer. So I'm just talking out loud here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read into the job report. So like, I, I don't know. I don't even know how they go about measuring it, to be honest with you. But yeah. So like, I mean, one of my tenants ended up losing a job. So I had the conversation with them and then just like helping other tenants move out and find a place. So like one of the ladies then move out as per the N11 date. So got her a motel so that she can move out. (laughs) <laughs> and then I'm gonna, you know, and I'm helping her find a place, but at least like it's not my responsibility. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. did what I can, and you didn't take action on your part. You didn't show up to showings and all of that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. termination date. I'm gonna move you to a motel, right? Because I did everything I can, but you were just like not following up and taking action. And what I told her is like, once you get settled in the motel, because we booked it for three weeks, I was like, call me. And then I will continue helping you for those three weeks. Right. But we have to work together. And she's like, yeah. So she shuttled down there and she's never called me. I'm done. The nice guy. Right. Like I did whatever I can. You don't call me. Then like in three weeks, you don't figure your shit out. That's on you. Not on me. I told you to call me. Right. Is this the one that you told they need to go for like a bachelor or like a shared accommodation? No, no. This is a different one. This one is, uh, this is the lady, her friends broke in the house and whatever stayed in with her and locked her out. All of that stuff. Yeah, Yeah. Like, obviously this is like very much upper alley of personality of not not taking any responsibility mm-hmm. um, anyways but now she's out the building secured so we're going to start renovations there soon we finished renovations in our third unit which we closed on in november so like the renovations were about a month or a little over a month and now we're waiting for february to refinance it so it'll be interesting to see how that goes mm-hmm. our three unit in sudbury we closed on it as well in november and we're finished two of the three units we're going to finish the third unit this week then we'll be refinancing that in February. Like the entire thing is being in and out projects as quickly as possible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'd be interesting to see how these goes because if it all goes well, then there's a bit of confidence, right? It's like, okay, like, because I'm still like, there's uncertainty in me still. It's like, oh man, like, 
Should I be taking a lot of action? Should I not? Like some of the numbers make sense, but like how are things playing out in the field? And if they do play out well from these projects, then like I'll have a little bit more confidence to move ahead on on projects where I feel like comfortable with the risk tolerance. What's really going to go wrong here? I don't it's know. just having more money tied in, right? Like, and then right. like part of it is, is that like, not that that's wrong, but in this market, like I also want to stack liquidity and that like kind of goes against like what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. So ideally I want to minimize the liquidity on each project. And speaking of tenants, I have one calling me right now. I'll call her back later. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you, man? What's been going on with you over the holidays? How's life? Yeah. I mean, holidays was chill. Like I honestly barely, I mean, minimal amount of work, right? Like a couple of days of work, whatever. That's all good. I think from a real estate front, I've got my two projects going on, which have just fucking blown up and are way more work than I initially intended to do. Like we're doing the full gut right now on the cottage. So I want to see that one through to completion. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the cottage. Last update is you wanted to wait till January. I forgot why. Cause that's the first time someone could get in or something like that. The fucking furnace took me like a month and a half to get in. And then they came I was up there on Friday and they came and they looked at it and they're like, we need you to rip out like all this shit so we can put in like this new furnace. I'm like, okay, like, can you guys just rip it out? And they're like, no. I'm like, can I just rip it out right now? And you guys do it right now. And they're like, no. I'm like, what do you guys want? So they basically left and said, they're going to have to come back in like a week or two. And in the meantime, we got to rip out a bunch of shit so that they can put in a new furnace. And then after the furnace is in, then we have heat and then we got to do the plumbing after that. Right. So it's, it's gotten delayed probably like a month beyond like what I would have wanted. We were initially targeting like mid February. We might be looking at like end of February to like mid March by the time we're done that thing. Right. So I don't like the fact that it's taking so long, but I mean, we did do a lot of renovation, like complete exterior, built a new deck, siding, interior. We fully like removed everything, new bathrooms all across the entire place, new bedrooms, everything's like reframed and done. Right. So. So we'll see how that one plays out. The Sudbury triplex, that one's also interesting. We've got two contractors on there. I'm waiting to see how my contractor goes. I'm a little bit concerned, but like, we'll see. I'm a little bit concerned about timelines and stuff like that, but we're also doing the back unit that we never initially intended to. We were just going to do the front two units and run as a duplex and keep the back unit vacant for a little bit, just because we didn't want to get into that renovation, which would cost like 80 grand. Cause it's like a full, like you're basically taking like new studs, new everything. Right. But we ended up doing that. So, so we're doing the full all three units at one shot, which is definitely going to take longer. So my anxiety is coming from, because in these partnerships, like I'm putting in my own capital as well a lot of times, right? Or I'm like paying for a lot of stuff and then I get it back from the partner, right? So a lot of my capital is going into that stuff. So I'm still looking and we were just talking about like um, a property that I was offering in Scarborough on. And I'm looking at another fourplex today. I'm still looking, I'm still, you know, considering buying, but I'm not, as aggressive, like a lot of what I seem to be hearing is just slow and steady, be okay with longer turnaround periods for like burrs and like stuff like that. That's more so on the larger multifamily space, like be okay with like a three to five year like timeline, which is what it used to be, right? Which is, it's fine. But I think you and I might be just used to like two, three months getting, get out and move on with life. Right. So I don't know. I'm trying to slow myself down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think likewise, so right now I have four projects on the go. We'll see how those ones shake out. Like, I feel confident in them, but at the same time, I know like confidence is, I don't want to be ego driven with the confidence. The numbers seem to make sense and all of that, but like until things shake out and when yeah. you see what the refis come in at, it's hard for me to just continue to take any more action. Anyways, speaking of, yeah. <laughs> oh wait, no, wait, wait. There's one more thing we need to chat about, Mayu. I, God, we should have oh, mentioned fun. this in the beginning, but we have an event at the end of January. It's January 29th. It's a four hour event where we talk about investing in these uncertain times because a lot has changed realistically from last year and it will probably continue to change within the next couple of months. So Maya and I are going to share what strategies we've been seeing work from other investors, what strategies we're implementing, how the landscape of investing has changed and what we personally are doing to pivot and what we are seeing other investors do to pivot their portfolio as well. So hopefully you guys can get some value from that. The link would be down in our show notes, or you could see it in Mayu or Mai's link tree on Instagram. And we'll jump into today's podcast episode. We have James Fernandez for a part two. We've had James Fernandez in one of our earlier episodes before where he was talking about his uh, 30 unit plus building in London. And now he's finally refinanced and stabilized that building. So we get into the stabilization process, James learning lessons along the way, his hurdles, how he was able to get around them and what the numbers shook out to just as a heads up. 
It was a perfect burr. So <laughs> also we talk about what James does, which is future investments, moving away from the multifamily space and pivoting to other business ventures, such as self-storage. He's pretty much jumped in and made a huge splash into. We talk about the ins and out of self-storage, ways to add value to self-storage with minimal cost and so many other interesting strategies around that space as well. Make sure to tune into this episode, guys. Leave a five-star review. I know I usually say that at the end, but I'm going to say it again now to remind you guys, 2023 New Year's resolution, get as many five-star reviews as possible on our Spotify and our Apple podcast. That's a terrible goal. The most ambiguous goal. That's the most bullshit goal ever. Give it a fucking number, Austin. Okay, let's get 2023 reviews. Yeah. <laughs> For the year 2023. Anyways, <laughs> we've dragged this on long enough. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest making his return and with a lot of new updates, James Fernandez. James, how's it going, man? It's going well. I uh, had a nice relaxing weekend in Barrie and now ready to hit the road again. Uh, just catching up on the kind of stack of stuff that goes over on over the weekend. I know uh, you were doing a bunch of driving around as well. So <laughs> I uh, saw that it went well, at least. Ton of catch ups today for me, too. Like, yeah, no, you're exactly right. After the weekend and my this is probably more relevant to my since he's a mortgage agent. Like there's just like a bunch of emails in the yeah, backlog. Mondays are fucked. Mondays are absolutely <laughs> fucked. <laughs> James. So second time on the podcast, but there's definitely some people that probably didn't hear their first episode. Why don't you give everyone a quick rundown of yourself, how you got started in real estate. And then we can definitely do, do a pretty sick update of everything you've been doing in the last year or so. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. I've been real estate investing for almost three years, I guess, two and a half. Or so I started when I went to OREC 2019 that Matt McKeever and Jeff Weibel were hosting in London, Ontario. After I saw what was real and possible and everything like that, I started my Airbnb in, in my house and I just threw all my stuff in the basement, started renovating in the basement to convert it to a duplex, refinanced. And then as I was holding that check, which was more than my entire year's salary, I realized, hey, maybe I should like <laughs> try to do this again. So I bought a few like smaller multifamily things and then as i uh, learning about bigger multifamily and now moving into commercial stuff. So self-storage facilities, laundromats, vet clinics, dental clinics, that type of stuff. So just kind of moving through, trying different things. I definitely have that shiny object syndrome type of thing where I'm moving from thing to thing, but I try not to move until I've nailed down the thing that I was working on. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> tons and tons of things on the go. I think when we last, actually, before we even get into that, I think the shiny object syndrome has fared you pretty well because it's gotten you out of your comfort zone. And kind of what I've noticed just following your stories outside or looking in is, is that once you commit to something financially, you start doing a ton of research on it. For me, like correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you have to commit financially before yeah. you feel like you can go all in on like knowing how to execute. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Serial obsession, I would say, is what it is. Because... For example, on the like duplex, triplex, fourplex, you could give me one of those in any condition, kind of in anywhere in Canada or USA right now, and I could figure it out with no like stress. But that comes from really diving into the fundamentals and solving those problems into maybe not even a written checklist, but a checklist in my head that I just know what needs to get done and I can find the people that need to do it anywhere I need to go. On the bigger stuff, I'm still fairly new. I've only done one large apartment deal type of thing or mid-size, I guess, apartment deal was the biggest deal I'd ever done at the time and scared the shit out of me. And I'd still feel some like nervousness or stress if I were doing another deal. But again, I could do it anywhere in Canada or USA and feel like I could execute on it, but it would be stressful for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And then on the self-storage side and the business deal acquisition side, I'm still fairly new at that and still trying to learn my processes and fundamentals. So I think I do have like squirrel, I have to look over here, but I am disciplined enough to finish what I'm doing before moving on to the next, at least. So that's at least one thing. <laughs> Your intro, I feel like was like super humble. Like, I think it was just like, yeah, I just did like one burn and then like I did another and like that was it. <laughs> it's kind of the intro that you gave, but I think, you know, you've been in some really fucked up properties. You're, you're kind of known <laughs> to that guy that takes on a lot of like messy, like <laughs> headache kind of properties and you turn them around completely. You've had like some rough tenants. You've done like a 33 unit apartment building. You've done two storage units now, or you're in the progress of doing two storage units, right? So You've taken on a lot. Let's dive into, if anyone wants to hear about how James first got started, definitely check out episode 50. But let's dive into the 33 unit apartment building. Because when we had you sure. on, you were just in the stages of, I think, closing it, or maybe you were like a month deep into it. 
if yeah. memory serves me right, you had like a pretty hefty private mortgage on it with like yeah, yeah. a pretty substantial like monthly payment, right? So like, tell us about that building, how you closed it as kind of like a refresher and then how it all went down. For sure. Yeah. So I closed it in August of 2021. I anticipated being extremely busy with it and I quit my job the month before so that I could focus basically full time on this apartment building. The monthly mortgage on it, because it was a private loan, was about $32,000 a month. And the building was at that point making 17. <laughs> so oh I gosh. had a burn pile basically and a, a deadline on that burn pile to make sure that uh, executed efficiently. So how did you manage that burn pile? Let me, let me ask you that first, I guess. Like when you're losing 17,000 a month and you don't have an income coming in from a day job, was it just like savings that you had that kind of set aside for the burn? So I had sold a property that I, it was my second property that I ever purchased, my first rental property ever. I sold that one to generate some income. I refinanced a few of the other properties. I raised some money and I had a first and second position mortgage on the property. And in my first, I cross collateralized several other properties to increase my loan to value on the apartment building as well. So I ended up only coming in with 5% down at the end of the day on 5 million bucks. So not insignificant, but it's sufficient enough that I had enough of a burn pile available to finish my rentals, to make sure my bills were paid, to make sure everything's getting done. I was basically racing against the clock so that I didn't run out of that money. But also there was at that point, start hearing about interest rates going up. So I was like racing against the clock there, trying to get everything done. I think if I had been a month earlier or two months earlier, I could have gotten almost another million or two million out of the property. But because interest rates went up, my debt service ratios went down. So my refinance amount went down with it. So I ended up basically doing just a full burr instead of pulling out money as I had initially anticipated, but it was a good experience nonetheless. And I learned a lot from being in that scenario where it is literally all or nothing and you're racing against time. I'd never experienced anything like that before, where it's a much more comfortable <laughs> uh, scenario where I won't lose hundreds of thousands of dollars if I don't execute properly. That's a crazy story. It sounds like you managed to pull it off just in time as you were kind of running out of capital. But so you bought it for five million. How much does a does a thirty three unit apartment building cost to renovate? And how many of the units did you renovate? I ended up renovating twenty four units at approximately fifteen thousand dollars a unit. Wow, it's pretty cheap. When I start adding in some other expenses like a boiler that went, which was another twelve thousand, and a few other break ins and other nonsense, <laughs> you know that type of shit. The average cost per unit rental, if I just take my full rental budget and divide it by the 24 units that I renovated, is about $20,000 per unit, mm -hmm. which is, I'm okay with that. A few things that I learned kind of along the way, I was tiling that, like the tub surrounds, that's about a thousand bucks roughly that it was costing me per unit to tile the tub surrounds. And I just, on one unit, my tiler wasn't available and whatever. I was like, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to throw a $200 backsplash on with PL glue and see what happens. And it rents it for the same amount. I was like, fuck this. No more tile. <laughs> the, the vinyl surrounds are going on. They're nice. Like they have a nook and everything and whatever, but it saved $800 per unit just doing something like that. You know, mm -hmm. like the labor is like 15 minutes instead of two days almost for the surround and after grouting and cleanup and everything. And the tile is way more expensive than the, like that. That's what I mean. Like just different, like, little learning experiences along the way that either help save me money or make me more efficient. And going forward, I definitely would employ those type of tactics to drive the rental costs down while keeping value high. Another thing that I found that I really kind of changed in my like self is when I go to like friends places or commercial spaces or like dormitories or residences or whatever, and I'm there visiting friends. And I look around and I see they don't use baseboard. They use the vinyl rubber thing that they just staple to their wall. Or they don't use this and they, they use this and they have these high efficiency toilets and mm. whatever. Like you just start learning all these tricks from, or you start recognizing the tricks that people are using to keep value high while driving costs down. And they're much more experienced at this than I am. So mm. yeah, you see what you want to see. I'd argue like 20K a unit is pretty cost efficient on a renovation because I think a lot of these- Very cheap. Right? Yeah. <laughs> And that includes the break-ins and all these other accessory things like <laughs> yeah. boilers. How did you find your contractors? Is it because you did a 24 units? Is that why they gave you such a kind of a big discount on these rentals? Labor was pretty much 50% of the cost. The contractors that I'm working with, I've worked with pretty much consistently with for my entire career as a real estate investor. So almost 
straight two years, I've kept them employed. Mm. We have a great relationship. And whenever they're low on work, I always give them more. And whenever they're busy, I'm flexible enough to kind of sway on that. So we just have a symbiotic uh, relationship that works really well. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point there. When you have good relationships with people, they're going to do whatever it takes to scratch your back as long as it's vice versa as well. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask about, which you made an interesting point on, is, is you found ways to keep the expenses down, adding more efficient toilets, so on and so forth. That impact is not immediate, right? Like, it's not like you add it in. And you can go to the bank and be like, six month expenses showing that it reduced X amount. How do they value that? Because you know what it does like mentally, but yeah. it doesn't show up financially until a few months later on. So that's another actually really important point that you brought up there. It's again, ties to relationships. So when I first started real estate investing, I got connected to this guy at First National and I won't mention his name or anything, but I had mentioned, Hey, like I have this deal. I really want to close it. And it was point the biggest deal i've ever done in my life about two million dollars and he's like james yeah we don't normally do deals this small <laughs> you need like maybe another few million or like another zero at the end of this thing for us to really be interested I'm like, god damn it but it was so motivating to me like i don't think he meant it that way he was just like trying to give me like this is what we need keep it clean keep it business it was like the most motivating thing anyone could have ever said to me and literally as soon as i closed this apartment building was planning to close it because i got it locked up in may as soon as i had it locked up i called him i was like hey is five million enough and he's like yeah we could do probably five <laughs> but uh because of the timeline and the structure and everything like that i ended up closing it privately but i had him engaged in my story basically from may of 2021 and him and I refinanced the building with a CMHC product in August of 2022. He was there. You went straight to CMHC? Yeah, straight to CMHC. Damn, that's pretty impressive. It takes like a couple of months just for that. <laughs> yeah, it took a while. But again, he was engaged right from May of 2021. He knew what I was doing, what I was planning. He gave input on some of the things. Like I leveraged his experience as well. It was phenomenal in that sense because. He could fight for me to whatever needs to be done. So for example, I brought him through multiple times, maybe five times or four times. So he could see like, oh, well, this is the progress and whatever else. And what do you think of this? And what should I do for this? And he's bought in at that point. The money's mine. It's just a matter of how much. So that relationship building, I think was key. And it's (laughs) obviously not always possible, but at a point where I had no real connections to people doing volume deals of that size, it was critical for me to build that network. So I'm now connected really well to him, his whole First National network, and kind of everything that entailed in there. It was a huge win in that sense. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So he was okay with kind of the pro formas of the expenses then knowing exactly what you're doing and the thought process behind it. That's how they end up. Oh, interesting. Sell the story. That's a really good point. They still needed probably a couple months history of expenses and utilities and whatever, yeah. right? So it sounds like maybe you gave them six months of history, I guess, probably. like The kind of the cool thing, I love the graphs that show actual trends in detail. So I could just say, hey, look at this graph. This is my water usage over the last 12 months. This is when we installed our first round of toilets here. And then mm-hmm. it just goes like this. This is where we're going to install round number two, round number three. So the water usage, you could see the impact almost immediately. Mm. As an example, this is where we installed our boiler and this is how much energy costs decrease. This is where we installed this and this and this. Like you, yeah. could, you could point and show like, oh, we're doing something useful here. There's value mm. there. And with every $1 out of five cap, it's $20 in value, right? So I'm, I'm forced, yeah. <laughs> trying to force that. But you were asking about numbers on the end like my valuation came in closer to eight mil, but I'm capped at DSCR with interest yeah. rates. So my loan ended up only being like four and a half million. Mm-hmm. I think people oversee that all of the time. Yeah. They just look at their appraised value. Ultimately, if you're trying to run a burr with almost any multifamily building, your appraised value will be significantly higher than your debt coverage, right? Yes. And so people really need to be running on the debt coverage if they're going to be doing a refund. Mike can probably speak more to it. Yeah. People are just buying on cost per unit or some nonsense like that when numbers don't make sense at all. We were kind of chatting about that we're on chatting, Instagram yeah. the other day. Yeah. It's an Ontario problem, I think. Right. Like I think once you get into like higher cash flow markets, 
the debt service starts to become not as big of a problem. And then yeah. you're back to, you know, values and stuff like that coming in low or whatever. Right. That's awesome, man. So you refinance out at, I guess, like, let's call it like 4.6 or something like that, I guess you said. And then whatever you had left in the money was kind of like that initial, like 5% down or so, right? Yeah, there wasn't much left in at that point. The reason I'm saying that is because a lot of the, like the actual debt that I had on it, I could cross collateralize and remove that debt in other ways, right? So the amount of money that I actually had left in the deal was inconsequential. Mm -hmm. What does the cash flow on a 33 unit building look like? <laughs> yeah. So right now it's making around 45 a month debt on it's about 22 and other expenses around 10. So around 10 a month. Wow. Yeah. That's life-changing money that's there pretty, for yeah, a lot of people that good. could retire you. Right. So what are the learning lessons from this 33 unit apartment? Like what did you do wrong that you wish you could have done differently? Or what did you do right that you're going to continue keeping forward when you buy more multifamily buildings? I know this might sound arrogant. I don't think I did anything wrong. And the reason I say that is because every, even if it was a mistake, it really taught me something important that I wouldn't take back. Like I needed to learn it. So an example of that is starting management of my renovations much more closely sooner. So an example of what I used to do in my smaller multifamilies is take a gigantic piece of board, I don't know, cardboard or whatever, and then just write out the scope of work I didn't do that in my permanent building and I don't know why, like it works so well on my small stuff and I just didn't do it on the bigger one. And I don't know why I should have, but what it taught me instead is like, oh, well there's management software. So now we have Asana going through and literally once the guys had done, once the team had done a couple of units, they know exactly what I want. They know the defects I'm going to point out. They know everything. And we're using the same paint kitchens, trim, bathroom, everything again and again and again. So there's not, any hesitance on what James is going to want in this unit when it's done. They know my accent colors this. And when something's missing from the unit, we have that like supply list. And that's actually another thing that I should have done a little bit better is uh, I had a room that was just full of materials and it was kind of chaos until kind of halfway through the project when I organized in, this is the paint section, this is the electrical section. This bedroom is just for plumbing stuff. This bedroom is just for, um, I don't know, whatever. You label it and, and call it. And then on, we had basically like a weekly catch up of, this is what we use, this is what we need for next week. And over the weekend, that stuff can get ordered and dropped off and whatever else. So that was um, crazy. That's crazy that's when you think about the amount of scale and the amount of materials and it. Just the fact that you needed like a bedroom for plumbing stuff is kind of ridiculous. Like it's crazy. Well, dude. Super inspirational. Yeah. Like I remember seeing this video of Kyle Ford on Matt McKeever's channel where he was doing like a 10 plex or something. And he's like, like, I can help have the guys like help unload this truck and then you'll be on your way. And they're like, no, like this whole truck is yours. And that happened. You know, it was so wild to see, well, the bricks here with 45 appliances. You know, Home Depot's here with this whole truck of shit, this whole truck of shit, this whole truck of shit. It's just like flooring is 48 skids of flooring, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous at that scale, but the pricing comes down so aggressively. It's insane. Like the pricing of flooring kind of fluctuated throughout 2021 to 2022, but at its cheapest, I was paying 76 cents a square foot for my two millimeter glue down vinyl plank at C5 commercial grade flooring. Wow. That's ridiculous. I've never, I can't even go to Habitat for Humanity to pick up flooring for that. But when you're buying like 10,000 square feet, they're able to work with you a little bit more, 20,000 or 30,000, you know, it's a little bit <laughs> different at that scale. That's crazy. I think we had one skid once in a house because we were doing like three units at the same time. So we ordered like one skid, but that's crazy. Just storing all that stuff and transporting it into the property. It's a nightmare on its own, right? It is a logistical nightmare getting them like there's four floors, right? Basement and three up. You don't want to kill your guys <laughs> either. Yeah. That's, that's heavy. It's yeah. a lot of work to bring that stuff in and out. The last thing for the apartment is, is that with the multifamily game, a lot of it comes over how fast you can churn the tenants around, right? In which you turn the majority of it. So you're able to refi within that period of time. But realistically speaking, if another investor was to buy it and they didn't have that same skill set or urgency that you had, and they only turned around 30% of the building, obviously the numbers wouldn't look as juicy. So what no strategies close. did you do to turn around the tenants or are there any particular tenants that you look at in the building where you say, okay, I'd buy this building because it's a younger demographic. Walk us through kind of your headspace when you're analyzing sure. that factor. So it actually, it starts before you buy the building. 
at least it did for me, working with the seller on getting him to do the work as much as possible. In this case, he was able to get me somewhere between seven to 12 vacancies before I closed. So that was extremely effective. And we also negotiated starting work on those units before closing. So I was able to hit the ground running with new rents pretty much as of September, 2021 in several of the units. So I started work well before closing. That was one. Number two, going through the leases very closely. I guess I'll bring up another mistake that I learned from. I have a VA and I had her go through the leases and input everything into Excel and whatever so I could just look at the Excel. But someone that isn't really in the game doesn't catch the small things that are really helpful. For example, there's no smoking in the apartment. You need tenant insurance. This is what your actual monthly rent is supposed to be and whatever the hell they're paying randomly isn't the same, you know? So all of a sudden I have N5 and A ammo to make sure that these tenants know there's new management. We're not fucking around. Follow our rules. You're not supposed to be smoking in here. The new tenant profile that we're bringing in is not going to be smoking inside the building, that type of stuff. So that was really key. And I just basically started enforcing the rules, which people really did not like because they had gotten used to just living like slobs, essentially like a uh, pest control cost me $35,000 in the building. Just enforcing the rules basically got a lot of the people that were super shitty out. I didn't do any cash for keys or anything like that. In general, I try to avoid that mainly because like us and I were kind of chatting yesterday, tenants can void on 11s kind of randomly. So you really need that signed secondary piece of paper that, that outlines the agreement, maybe an audio recording of them being fully explained to what, what they're signing and getting into because multiple times from multiple investors, they've gotten screwed by saying, Hey, like if I give you this, you'll leave. Right. And yes, here I sign. And then when it comes time for them to leave, they don't and say, and the investor goes to file for the eviction and the tenant just comes to the hearing and says, well, I didn't know what I was signing. Yeah. You know, it's kind of garbage. So you got to be careful. Yeah. So I try to stay away from that and just focus on enforcing shitty LTV rules. It's garbage, but it's my only weapon really for the, and I'm still fighting uh, with a couple of people. Maybe saw some of those videos. The one guy pooped all over his goddamn unit. And then we had to call like literally hazmat team to get that cleaned up because the whole second floor smelled like shit. Pest control, like this one guy's unit, we brush past this coat and out of the coat, like a thousand cockroaches fall out of it. It's disgusting. That's fuck. That's so fuck. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even tell you. Like there's, there's, there's still like four units that are really bad that I'm still working on, but it's just a matter God of time. Damn. LTB's taking like nine months right now. So. All right. One more question because Austin brought us back to the apartment and stuff, but I guess there's two sides to this, right? So one is everyone wants to do an apartment. Right. I think if you're an investor at some point, everyone kind of gets this entire thing of I want to do bigger apartment buildings. The question here is, do you think education first is important or do you think jumping into it is important? And then the second part of it is, is this, there's this concept of a ladder, right? Like you do a single family, you do a duplex, triplex, fourplex, tenplex, fiftyplex, right? How important is that ladder for you, in your opinion? All right. So on the first question with the education versus just jumping in, I think that people are overeducated in general right now. And I get the stupidest goddamn questions on Instagram all the time. Like, oh, you did this coaching. You did this coaching. You did this coaching. Should I do it too? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I did that coaching because I wanted to join the network. I learned pretty much everything else off of YouTube for free. So like, just do it. You've watched more podcasts than me. You've read more books than me. You know more about stuff than I do. Just do it. Like there's nothing yeah. holding you back right now. And you're just procrastinating by asking these stupid ass questions. <laughs> like you're looking for permission to join another coaching program. And instead, what I'm going to tell you is just buy the goddamn building, find something, yeah. send out offers. Like there's two people reading too many books, listen to too many podcasts and not doing anything at all. That's why like in most of it, just do it. And then come back to the podcast, like a podcast like this, where you can learn little tips and tricks, but no podcast is going to say, listen, you little bitch, just do the goddamn deal. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's what people need to hear. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be a real, that's going to be a real on Instagram. It's going to be James going, listen, you little bitch. <laughs> Your second question. Um, I've already forgotten it. Oh, the, the, the latter. It's not important to me at all. And that's like part of that shiny object type of thing. The only reason I did an apartment building in general was I had come across Alfonso from Wealth Genius. And at that point, I was just like really vibing with him. <laughs> and uh, I saw what he's doing. And it just happened so randomly where I said it out loud for the first time ever. 
you know, like I want to buy an apartment building. And this guy overheard me and he's like, oh, well, I know a realtor that's selling one. And the realtor like showed me the deal and whatever is garbage. It was like Dundas Street in London, Ontario, no parking bachelors. Like I was like, Fuck, no, that is not for me. I'm not getting involved in that. But if you come up with something else, like three-story walk up, bricked outside and not siding, uh, like purpose built, something, lots of parking, I'm down. And at that point I had like $1, you know, like I, I just like, you know, just kind of said it out loud for the, literally the first time. So that was Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Thursday, he calls, he's like, Hey, walk through this afternoon for an apartment building. I know someone that's selling one. I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. So we went Thursday, sent an offer Thursday night, Friday got accepted. And that's why I bought it because now I committed. <laughs> so I had to do it. I had to figure it out. But it literally it's like Tuesday to Friday. It was like um, a firm offer. No way. Right. Like it was conditional. It was conditional, yeah, okay. but at, in my head, I already bought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I just had to figure it out and make it work. But that's how it kind of happened. That's why I bought an apartment bill is because I said it on Tuesday and it happened on Friday. And I was like, fuck, it has to, you know, I have to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go into kind of how you got into storage unit game. Cause that's pretty interesting and pretty unique. Right. So you're doing this like 33 unit apartment building. I'm sure you're like nervous as fuck. Cause like a lot of shit going on, a lot of money being tied up and a lot of debt being accumulated. Right. How did you get into the storage side? How did that deal come about? How did you go about handling it? Keeping in mind, like you've got this massive project over here and you're now getting into another massive project, right? Yeah. So yeah just tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So my business partner, uh, Nathan Klim, him and I have worked together on a few things here and there. We did a few flips and selling them in like January to March period. So that was like kind of peak London, Ontario market. And we, we did fairly well there and wanted to see um, what else we could work together on. We were both watching a bunch of like random TikTok videos and, and storage videos from a few different Instagram influencers, let's call them. And uh, we started just seeing what the market was like. We came across a couple of realtors that sent us a few deals. Not all of them are great. And that's like, there's a lot of like cash flow, cash flow, cash flow from self storage like type of stuff. But you need to really run your numbers and run the deal properly as anything else. And one came up that seemed pretty decent. So that's where we just threw an offer and it got accepted. And that's kind of where it started. The second one, I actually don't even know how Nathan found this guy is in the States. It was so cheap. It was 200 grand US for this facility. And it, like that was the first property I've ever bought ever that made money on closing. <laughs> Every other thing was like some, some shithole that I needed to put a lot of work into versus this one. Like we close it and we're, we're cash flowing from day one and we just only have like way to go up from there. And then number three, it was actually the same realtor from the first deal. They brought us another deal and uh, closing it in a few days. I didn't know there was a number three. I thought it was only one and two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just learning along the way there. Let's go through uh, an example. I think the first one is probably the one you can speak most about because that's the one that you're constantly updating on your stores as well. Mm -hmm. So very basics. What is a storage unit? Why did it appeal to you? Let's talk about financing, legalities, like just the very one-on-one -on -one basics of storage unit. Sounds good. So the main reason it really appealed to us was because there's commercial leases between the landlord and the tenant. And if you're from Ontario, you have suffered the wrath of the LTB here. It is garbage. Literally the most broken system that holds so many people hostage right now as landlords. And as tenants. Tenants are suffering too, where they have shithole landlords that are breaking the rules. It's not working for anyone right now and nine month delay. So on the commercial side, if people aren't paying their rent, as an example, I send them a registered mail, 30 days notice type of thing, get, get out or pay. And if they don't, then I can auction their stuff and make some money on okay. it. And that's it. That's like <laughs> what really appealed to us after losing, like I have tenants that owe me nearly $15,000 of rent, tenants that owe me close to five, but it all adds up to a lot of money. And I have pretty much no real way other than small claims court, if I can even find them, find them. after yeah. they disappear, of getting that money back. So on the self-storage side, it's just automated credit card payments recurring every month. Some people pay for the full year or half a year right away. There's so much more control over the asset, which is what really appealed to me. Also, let's just say you buy a used storage container. Let's say it's like a C-can that's a 10 by 20, you buy for like $3,000 or something like that. You could probably make 2,500 bucks a year on that thing. Is it as simple as just buying it and laying it down? Or did you have to adopt that strategy somehow? You're not pouring down foundation, right? No, it's gravel, packed gravel, uh, recycled asphalt, that type of stuff. Make sure it's graded properly, that type of thing for water flow and then snow removal. 
make sure it's sturdy. And that is it. That is it. So what's limiting you from just adding a ton, like buying just the largest, nothing. That's what we're doing. That's what you just bought. Okay. Um, So we used, um, initially we were going to buy C cans, which are about $3,000, $4,000, paint them up, clean them up, whatever. And then uh, we realized there's like this big labor shortage in general everywhere right now. So we're like, all right, we'll just go newer. So they're about 5,000 each and they're ready to go. But then we realized shit, trucking and gas costs are so goddamn high right now. And it was going to cost us like 40 grand to get the containers up. Like Mm -hmm. it is stupid amount. And then, so we pivoted completely and dropped the sea cans, dropped all that and went to these flat packs from storage tech that are, they can stack them 10 high when shipping them up. So all of a sudden our shipping costs drops to one tenth of what it was. So it's like 4,000 bucks to get them shipped up instead of 40 grand. And they're built in like half an hour, basically per unit and just put exactly where we want them to be. So it worked out really well in that kind of progression. We have fun. I think we bought the facility with 24, 25 units, something like that. We've got another 15 or 20 units on site right now. And we're like, just kind of filling them up with organic growth. We haven't really advertised anything yet. And we have another 40 or so, another 50 units, maybe 70 coming. Basically it's going to be over like hundred units on site. Then we'll keep filling it up. There's a radius plus that you can use in USA for seeing how dense the storage unit per capita type of thing is. Um, I can't remember what the ratio is. I think it's like one storage unit for every 10 people is considered fairly good to add units. And once it gets down to like one storage unit for seven people, then it's kind of dense. So somewhere in the range, I, I know there's an episode or podcast about it. Someone can look up briefly. Again, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. Just look at that one section and then stop mm-hmm. crossing and do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> the storage space, like you said, it's great from an LTV perspective. It makes logical sense as to how you can increase units or increase net income at a pretty low kind of cost per se, right? Yeah. I think we all know that it exists. We all know that the business model makes sense. A, why aren't more people doing it? B, why aren't there more storage units? Just like, why isn't everyone just adding more and more and more storage units to a space? And then see how did you guys go about determining that that deal in that market was a good spot to buy in? That was like three questions. So yeah, that's fine. I'll repeat that's it if you forget. <laughs> that's fine. So A, why isn't everyone doing it? I feel like everyone's just uh, watching podcasts and doing it and <laughs> um, not doing it. So it's the same thing with any other like easy money. I can probably pick up. I saw this guy actually, he's renting fridges by the hour. A fridge. To who? For what? To venues, events, whatever. Uh, you have a shitload of extra food to store beer, whatever. That's genius. And it, yeah. it's a fridge and a truck. like Mm -hmm. anyone could do that Mm. quote unquote but it takes work so in the same way for so many other things anyone could do airbnb anyone could selfie pics on the internet you know like whatever it is (laughs) not everyone's doing it (laughs) because it takes work to do so the second question i think was about why is everyone not just adding storage units Uh, they are once you start digging in and you see like the demand in certain areas the amount of growth you'll see like access storage i can't even remember there even u-haul has storage there's a bunch they're just throwing hundreds of units up because there's so much demand for it right now and even the phone calls that i get from harry sound which is where our facility is oh i've been calling around everyone's got this eight month wait list like that type of shit like all right well we've got five acres that we're going to throw a bunch of units on if you want want to go to our website and book a unit they're like oh my god i can book it today hell yeah you can (laughs) that's true (laughs) i guess the last question there was how did you guys decide that perry sound had this huge need and that was the market that you were going to jump in did you guys end up doing like a feasibility study at all or anything like that or no not anything that formal it was basically uh, we were brought the deal and then we started doing some research after kind of locking it up because we had some due diligence period in our heads, the deal was already solid as is, and there's only room to grow from there. So once we finished our like calling around, we're calling everyone that we could find on Google Maps, basically. Do you have any available outdoor storage? Do you have any available indoor storage? Yes, no. What are the rates? That type of thing. What we actually found is that no one had any available storage and the outdoor rates were super low. So we're like, super all right. Low, like cheap? Super cheap. Like okay. you're talking about, 10 bucks a month to store your RV type of thing. Like that's way too low and they're full. And that's when you start doing a little bit more research and whatever else, 94% occupancy seems to be 
like kind of the sweet spot where you don't, you're not turning away customers, but your prices are high enough that you're not at hundred percent occupancy. So other strategies include raising rents on existing tenants in opposite cycles. So for example, 50% of your existing tenant base would get a rent raise of 10%, see how many people stay. And if the, that 50% of tenants, everyone stays, then the other 50% of tenants is getting a 15 or 20% raise. And because some people have to leave, you have to have that like 90, 94, whatever percent to be at peak, according to people way smarter than I am and have done this for much longer. So um, that's basically what we're targeting. You can't do that in residential at all. Mm -hmm. We're slowly pivoting to actually advertise, but like roadblocks that you wouldn't even think of are stuff we're struggling it with, like getting on Google Maps as a business is really goddamn hard. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> especially in the States when you don't have a mailbox there. And it's really tricky to be verified on Google in that sense, but people can't find you on Google. Otherwise you don't show up at all or the address shows up, but there's no facility showing up. So when people Google self-storage, very sound, we weren't coming up before. Now we are. That's one example, accepting payments internationally, sending payments internationally. Those are all like just different roadblocks. I'm um, getting people on automated payments through credit card versus ACH or PayPal or Venmo or whatever from international stuff. Like those are all different challenges. Um, mm -hmm. so. I'm going to stop Mayu because you asked three questions. He's going to ask another three, so I have to jump in. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask two questions though, but they're like kind of two separate elements. One's on the operational line. As a customer, what are they exactly looking for? Like security? Because a lot of these are in rural areas from yeah. the perspective of the storage. How big does it need to be? How do I ensure that it's secure? Do I have a key? Is it like a lock pad? Mm -hmm. Is there hydro? Is there heat? Like what is the target clientele that and what's an ideal kind of storage facility for them? And on sure. the other side, from the financial point of view, it's like how are people pricing these things? Because with apartment buildings, it's priced on potential. Theoretically, you are overpaying, but there's the upside to it. And I would think as a storage owner, if I know that it's that easy to add extra storages to it, I would price on potential as well, right? So I guess from the operational side, that's my question from the financial side is the pricing element. So we'll focus on the operational first. So the typical clientele is people moving in and out of homes. They have a bunch of furniture they just need to throw down for a few months while either renovating or in transit or whatever else. My ideal clientele is people who do that and then forget that that's there and pay me in perpetuity while buying new furniture. That is also <laughs> happening. They have a, set up an automatic credit card withdrawals every month and they forget that I exist. That is the ideal client. A lot of other clientele is uh, contractors looking to store extra tools and supplies and whatever else. Um, when it comes to security, we do have a gate, uh, like a LiftMaster gate that just kind of opens with a gate code. And to exit, you like just kind of pull over the, the metallic plate. I don't know exactly how it works, but it senses uh, the vehicle above it. On the uh, key, they have a key. We have a similar key for our new units. And on the older units, uh, th there's a combination lock. They have a combination lock. We don't even have the combination. We'd overlock it if they were in arrears or we just cut it off and auction their shit. So that's like kind of the security side of things. For the financial side of things. Um, oh, sorry. One quick thing. Did they want like this hydro, heat? Like what are they looking sorry, for? Yes. Just uh, the first two facilities that we bought, there's no electricity, water, gas, heat, anything. It's literally a box that you put shit in and lock it. That's it. There's no utilities really to worry about other than us putting internet up. That's it. We do have now some electricity costs with cameras, but I'm talking about like connection fees essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like maybe, maybe $400 a year, which is I'm nothing. Not yeah. yeah. The taxes, it's primarily it. <laughs> land tax and mortgage and then management fees, of course. So like we do pay for management software access. It is fairly expensive, but it allows us to automate almost everything. And by fairly expensive, I'm talking about maybe close to 10 grand a year. Mm -hmm. But typically, uh, just to kind of wrap up that comment, the expense ratio is about 20% versus closer to 40% on an apartment building. So quite a bit different there. So on the financing side, again, like people can do 
anything really if they wanted to but the one that nathan and i are closing uh, coming up soon he had it listed for eight hundred thousand with an appraisal of 880 ready to go we asked him when he wanted to close he said like asap so we said all right 30-day close six hundred thousand with a 50 percent btv and he said yes that was the first so, one or the second one or the third one third one third one coming up soon the one in the u.s u.s was number two this one's number three it's closer to ottawa so he had it listed at 800, you guys went in at 600, that's 280 below appraised value, and you were able to put a 50% VTB on there. So our VTB is pretty common in the storage facility space, which I know a couple of people that have looked at deals and it sounds like they are, but. In general, you're just trying to solve their problem. In his case, he needed to close quick and move on to another deal, but had some like kind of excess from our purchase that he was able to hold as a mortgage. Also, one of the nice things about it is we're not doing any interest payments for the first year. So on that other 300 grand uh, is a single investor that's uh, holding 50% equity and not getting any cash flow for the first year while we stabilize as well. And the other reason that it's stabilizing is because he set up, paid for, and is executing for us the building of another 70 storage units on site, temperature controlled storage units on site. He's building another 70 units for you guys included in the purchase price? No way. That's correct. That's that's absolutely correct. Like you're paying for the 70 units separately. No. They're they're the included in the purchase price. Yeah. Because 70 that's times, I mean you said five grand a unit, that would be what, 350? So in this case, no, it's a track T system. It's about forty thousand dollars to build that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So that's what I mean though. Like if people could, they would, but they're not solving that problem for him. You know, we're solving another problem. And that problem outweighs any other financial problem. So I think just like Austin was extremely successful in his cash for keys yesterday, it's because he's solving a specific problem for them. I know I'll talk to other guys like Moose is really good at that as well. He's bought a car for someone or helped someone move or, you know, like solve their problem. That's it. In general, when negotiating, if you know what their problem is, you've won. Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying. A lot of people don't ask the right questions. It's like sales. A good salesman finds out what issues you're facing and dives deep into figuring out what the exact problem is. A bad salesman, surface level, assumes your issues or hears one thing, thinks that's the main issue, and then just tries to prescribe a solution right away, right? You have to constantly ask questions, dive down, understand what exactly the need is, and then figure out a solution there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before just throwing solutions at them, right? So figure out what the problem is. And that's what we did. Hey, this is your price. When do you want to close? And he said, like, I have another deal that I'm closing on soon. I don't have time for this shit. Just get it off my plate. I'm like, all right, <laughs> we can do that. No problem. Damn, that's pretty cool. But I think that VTB deal is great. I think the US set one you said was like 200 grand or something like that. Let's just assume you had like a million dollar like storage facility or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. What is financing traditionally look like for a storage facility? It's the same as any other commercial stuff. Typically, we're seeing 70% loan to value type of thing. It's uh, that servicing, no problem. It's any other commercial financing type of structure. It's not nothing crazy. And how'd you go about like finding like cap rates and stuff like that? Are you cap rates for the area are roughly in Ontario, kind of everywhere, five to six percent. Nothing crazier than that, really. Typically, people are selling based off of cap rate and potential cap rate, like you had kind of alluded to. But we came across another deal. It looked really good, but the lady wanted like, I don't know, some ridiculous number for it. And she's valuing it as both the business plus the assets, as most business acquisitions would go, where you have goodwill purchase and then asset purchase. But that's not how it works on this side of things. Um, so like, for example, you have, let's just say it's a hundred unit storage facility and it's making 300 grand a year or something like that at a 5% cap rate. That's $6 million or whatever it is. That's NOI cap rate value done. So she did that. And then she's like, plus these storage units are worth $4,000 a piece and I have a hundred. So give me $400,000. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, nah, we're not, we're not doing anything. Those are yeah. like kind of rough numbers, for example, but it is essentially that where she's valuing the business and the assets as one normally would, and then throwing the assets on top of that as well. So very different. You know how it goes. You find different sellers. Yeah, exactly. And would you argue, would you say a lot of, I guess, storage space owners are more like educated owners that like understand like businesses and business valuations, or is it kind of just inherited properties or what type of sellers you're seeing? It really depends. Um, some people like this guy that we're buying in Ottawa from, um, he knows what he's doing. He's good at it and whatever else. He just has other shit going on. He's like, just get rid of it for me. 
I don't mm-hmm. care. Just move it. He's a savvy investor though. He's got other investments, but other people that we're seeing, they just got it from their parents or they've had it for so long. The rents are garbage. They don't even know who's in. They have no software to help them. They're collecting checks manually every month. So people actually have to think about them every month, you know, like just kind of old school mom and pop thinking. And that's fine with me because the information asymmetry is where I make my money. If you don't want to do smart work and you just want to work hard, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with hard work. Well, why not do both work hard and smart and make some 10x gain on what you could be doing? I'll do it. I don't mind. James, that was dope. I think you have now officially spent an hour breaking down for us the entire 33 unit apartment space and the storage industry space. So a lot of value for a lot of people in this episode. Looking forward to seeing the crazy shit you're up to next September when we get you back on this podcast for part three. At this point in the podcast, we like to ask, I guess, two questions. So the first question is, where do you see your business going five years from now? Well, first, I don't know. I always like get attracted to some other random thing. Most recently was a like a vet clinic purchase with my wife, who's a veterinarian and kind of learning and diving into something like that. So business acquisitions would be great in general. The self-storage thing for now is really, really enticing me. I really like the control over the asset and the growth potential and also investing in the States. Uh, I think we get a lot more value for our money when doing that down there as Canadians. So maybe pivoting to that and focusing on that. All right. And then the second question is for new or intermediate investors in today's market. What do you see as the primary risk, the biggest mistake, whatever you want to call it, the biggest piece of advice you'd give? Make sure you run your exit strategy first. If you don't have a good exit, you don't have anything. The main thing I see people doing right now is getting so, even watching like my stuff and they get excited about it, which I get, you need that motivation and excitement, but don't get so lost in the excitement that you shoot yourself in the face with the rising interest rates and buying just on cost per unit without seeing an exit. Make sure you know your exit and maybe have multiple exits so that you can pivot if needed. Um, I can give an example of, of where I got kind of caught like that, if you'd like. For sure. So my second property I ever bought, my first rental property ever, I bought it in February of 2020, February 18th, 2020. I started renovating and demoing it, planning for two unit Airbnb down the street from the factory, which is one of the biggest yeah. entertainment places in Southwestern Ontario, if not Canada. In March, 2020, COVID became a thing. And by July, 2020, when I was done, the factory was shut down and COVID eliminated any chance of me running that as an Airbnb or so I thought. So I had to pivot. Luckily, I bought it super cheap. That was my first rental really ever. I way overspent. <laughs> Looking back, I could have probably done it in a third of the costs, but I spent 120 grand on that rental, bought it for 200 and refied it for 50. So luckily got some money out of there and whatever else, but I had put tenants in and that was half the cash flow that I was expecting from Airbnb. Luckily, again, it still worked at 450 and let's just say 3,500 bucks in rent, but it was not what I was expecting at all. But because I had that multiple exits available, um, that was still a win. But if you don't, <laughs> you get effed, then now you're stuck in that deal with a hundred grand or your negative cash flow or whatever else if you pull all your money out. Like you just got to plan for that. Just be careful out there. That's a really good point. That's what we're seeing with a lot of these appreciation only investors. There is one exit. And when that exit seems like it's not panning out right now, you're either holding it with negative cash flow and bleeding, or you're going to have to sell it at a loss. Right. So, very important point that you made there. This was a fantastic episode, James. You're always up to some like interesting shit. If you guys don't follow James on Instagram, you have to give him a follow. Because if you're not looking at shitty properties, you're seeing at what he's up to next. Shitty properties as in you're buying it in bad condition and then you turn it around. It's all I could just afford when I started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's literally all I could afford when I first started is the shit no one else wanted. And just kind of be creative to solve that problem and, and make money on the end. It worked out, luckily, in my favor. Um, by just like going through and doing, putting that elbow grease, whatever you want to call it. I think the cool part is, is that with your Instagram, you're very transparent. So I know you've been posting a lot about the LTB and your experience there, the ups and the a lot of downs as well, but just being transparent and sharing your experience, right? Because it gives investors a realistic picture of how it's like actually investing in residential yeah. real estate. It's mainly to tone down the, the freaking circle jerk of people just hyping each other up for <laughs> no, like without any basis or foundation, like 
they got a little bit of money from crypto or whatever, you know, and now it's like, oh, let's go, let's go buy real estate, you know, whatever it is. It's like, just like, man, you have some money. Just like think for a second on how you're going to spend it because this might be the last deal you ever do. Just treat every deal like you do. Like it's the last deal you're ever going to do. So make it, make it good. Yeah. And that's like, I, I just want people to understand the challenges as well as uh, like, I, I don't normally uh, post like my, my refi checks or Lambos or Rollies. I don't, I don't do any of that shit because the reality of it is much more humble. Uh, you got to do work to get the success for most people, I'd say. For sure. 100%. See, if you guys like that straight shooter mentality that he just gave, you got it. You got to follow his IG. If people want to follow you, connect with you, learn more about your journey, how could they best do so? Yeah, Instagram is the best way. It's james.ferns. I'm sure you'll add some sort of thing there, but that's the best way to get a hold of me. I primarily interact through DMs there. Awesome. Awesome. And you should have liked, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast. Share it with a friend because it helps bring a greater audience into our podcast, which in turn helps bring great guests like James on here. So until next time, everyone, invest smarter, live better. Take care, all.